Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I want to thank you for listening and ask you to look around the site. We have over 3,400 audios featuring uh, great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. My books are on Amazon.com, and you can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. Please, uh, while you're there on the computer, check out my website that allows you to tune into Hackberry Radio or just go to Hackberry House of Chosun and take a look and a listen there. I'm reading today from a book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. It's by William Gurnall, the English Bible scholar and pastor who died in 1679. And we're talking about the certainty of persevering if armed. There can be no perseverance without true grace in the heart. But if Christ's grace reigns in you, victory is assured. That is why putting on the armor of God is so important. It guarantees you will persevere and overcome at last. True grace can never be vanquished. Scripture promises that everyone born of God overcometh the world. Victory is sown in our new natures, the very seed of God, which keeps us from being swallowed up by sin or Satan. As Christ rose, never more to die, so he lifts the saint's soul from the grave of sin, never again to come under the power of spiritual death. Hence, he that believes is said in the present tense to have eternal life. The law came four hundred years after God's covenant with Abraham, yet it could not nullify the promise God had made. Likewise, nothing that intervenes in the saint's life can nullify the promise of eternal life that was given to Christ before the foundation of the world. If it were possible for a child of God somehow to miss the mark and lose the eternal life promised him, it would have to be from one of these causes, because it is possible for God to forsake the Christian and withdraw his grace from him because the believer can forsake God or because Satan has the power to pluck him out of God's hands. But but none of these will stand for the following reasons. First, because God can never forsake the Christian. He himself has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He has also promised that he will not change his mind with regard to the love and special grace he awards his children. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Even when you sin, you do not provoke God to disinherit you. Instead, he is prompted to win you back to fellowship with him. Hear his words through the prophet Isaiah. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and I smote him. I hid me, and I was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. Never doubt for a moment that whom he loves, he loves to the end. To give further proof to our doubting hearts, God seals his promise with an oath. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee. He continues, The mountains shall depart, meaning at the end of the world, when the whole frame of the heaven and earth shall be dissolved. 
but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. Now, before you argue that the promise was given to the Jews alone, read the rest of the passage. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So we see that all God's children are included. As Christ came from heaven on an errand of mercy for us, so he returned there to take possession of the promised inheritance, which he purchased with his death. How can there be any doubt concerning God's love standing firm when we see the whole covenant already performed to Christ on our behalf? God not only called Christ, sanctified and upheld him in the great work he was to finish for us, but also justified him by his resurrection. And then God welcomed him back to heaven, where he sits on the right hand of the Father on high, as advocate and intercessor for every saint. Thus, he not only has possession for himself, but full power to give the inheritance to all believers. And then, because the believer can never forsake God, according to the provision made in the covenant, knowing the journey to heaven is long and arduous and our grace is weak, we may often be afraid that we will forsake God before we reach our eternal destination. But God's covenant scatters this cloud of doubt by making provision for our weakness. The Spirit of God is given to ensure our safe arrival in heaven. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Notice the verse does not say the saint will have his Spirit if he walks in God's statutes, but that the Spirit will cause him to do it. The Holy Spirit is both teacher and guardian of the saint. Perhaps you fear that if you grieve the Holy Spirit, he may get angry and leave you to perish in your sins. It is true the Spirit of God is sensitive to disobedience and may draw back from your sins, just as he withdrew from Samson and let him fall into the Philistines' hands. But he did not abandon him permanently. When Samson cried out in his distress, the Spirit responded, and put forth his strength in him again. It should put your fears to rest and know the office of the Spirit is to abide forever with the saints. He shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. While the Spirit is dwelling within the saint to keep and protect him, Christ is interceding in heaven on his behalf. I have prayed, Christ told Peter, that thy faith fail not. If he prays for one, surely he will pray for all the others as well. In this same passage, our Lord instructed Peter, When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. In other words, when you feel the force and effectiveness of my prayer for your faith, tell all your friends about it. Hearing how I care for my own should strengthen their hearts. As long as Christ is interceding for us, how can we perish? Do you suppose he will ever grow weary of this act of love? His word assures us that he ever liveth to make intercession for all who belong to him. Because Satan cannot pluck the believer out of God's hand is the third point. If you are a saint, you are wrapped up in the everlasting arms of almighty power. The devil, however, is wrapped up in chains of everlasting condemnation and cannot shake them off no matter how hard he tries. 
If he cannot free himself from God's chains, how can he tear you from God's grasp? The devil can tempt a saint only by God's permission. If you believe God loves you, then surely you can trust his wisdom when he releases Satan to assault you. Will it not be when he has, when he can be repulsed with the greatest humiliation? To know that Satan's power is limited and God's grace is limitless should restore the spirits of weak believers who fear they will not hold out to the end. God has given Christ the life of every soul within the ark of his covenant. If you are his, your eternal safety is provided for. Was he not able to make you willing to march under his banner and join his quarrel against sin and hell? The same limitless power that overcame your rebellious heart will overcome all your enemies within and without. The God who can make a few wounded men rise up and overthrow a city can also make a wounded spirit triumph over sin and Satan. The ark stood in the midst of Jordan until the whole camp of Israel was safely over into Canaan. And so does Christ's covenant, which is typified by the ark. Christ, covenant and all, stand to secure the saints a safe passage to heaven. Now a word of caution must be given. There is a great danger of believers falling from this comfortable doctrine into a careless security and presumptuous boldness. Although the Christian is secure from a total and final apostasy, yet he may suffer a grievous fall which bruises his conscience, weakens his grace, and brings reproach to the gospel. To know these dangers lurk in the shadows of this doctrine should be enough to keep the Christian upon his watch at all times. Be careful that you do not misuse your liberty in Christ as a license to sin. Shall we sin because grace abounds? God forbid, says Paul. To what towering heights has sin grown when a man draws his encouragement to sin from the everlasting love of God? We may surmise that true grace does not dwell in the heart that draws such a cursed conclusion from the premises of God's grace. The genuine Christian will draw quite the opposite conclusion, that is, that God's grace is given not so he can wallow in sin, but so he can overcome it. The only acceptable response to the magnitude of God's love and grace is to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Just as a child should be motivated to please his father by a force stronger than the fear of being disinherited, so we should rise above performing our Christian duties out of fear of falling away. We are under the law of a new life. This should cause us as naturally to desire communion with God as a child's love causes him to desire to see the face of his dear father. It is the nature of faith, the grace that trades with promises to purify the heart. And the more certain the report of God's love which uh, faith brings back to the soul from the promise, the more it purifies the heart. Because faith, fueled by love, inflames the heart toward God. If once this affliction takes fire, the room becomes too hot for sin to stay there. Now we go to the next section, the promised result of perseverance. The phrase, having done all to stand, 
includes the blessed result of the saints' perseverance. To stand at the end of this war will abundantly recompense all the hazard and hardship endured in the war against sin and Satan. In earthly wars, not everyone who fights shares the spoils. The gains of war are commonly put into a few pockets. The common soldier, who endures most of the hardship, usually goes away with little of the profit. He fights to make a few that are great yet greater, and is often discharged without enough to pay for the cure of his wounds. But in Christ's army, the only soldier who loses is the one who runs away. Every faithful soldier receives a glorious reward, which is spelled out in this phrase, having done all, to stand. To stand implies three things. A, it means to stand conquerors. An army, when conquered, is said to fall before its enemy, and the conqueror stands. At the end of this spiritual war, every Christian shall stand a conqueror over his vanquished lusts and Satan who headed them. Though the Christian enjoys many sweet victories here over Satan, still the joy of his conquest is interrupted by fresh alarms from the rallied enemy. He wins a victory one day only to be confronted with still another battle on the next, and often even his victories send him from the conflict bleeding. Though he repulses the temptation at last, yet the wounds his conscience receives in the fight cast a shadow on the glory of the victory. For your eternal comfort, Christian, you can look forward to a day when there will be a full and final decision in the quarrel between you and Satan. You will see your enemy's camp completely scattered with not a weapon left in his hand to use against you. You will tread upon the very fortresses from which he fired so many shots. You will see them dismantled and demolished until there is not one corruption left standing in your heart for the devil to hide himself in. On that glorious day, the enemy who has made you tremble will be trampled under your feet. B, it means to stand justified and acquitted at the great day of judgment. Scripture uses the term stand frequently in this sense. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, Psalm 1.5. That is, they shall not be justified. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? That is, who can be justified? The great God, upon whose errand we come into the world, has appointed a day when he will judge the world by Jesus Christ. It will be a solemn day when all who ever lived, high and low, good and bad, shall meet in one assembly to appear personally before Christ and from his mouth to receive the eternal verdict. The Lord shall be attended by an illustrious guard of angels ready to carry out the sentence he pronounces. I do not wonder that Paul's sermon on this subject caused an earthquake in Felix's conscience. Rather, I am amazed that any should be so far gone in numbness of conscience that the thought of this day cannot restore them to their senses. Do you not count them happy? who will be acquitted by Christ on that day? Do you not wish to know who these blessed souls will be? To find out, you do not need to go to heaven and search the rolls. You may know here and now that those who shall stand in the judgment are those who fight the Lord's battles on earth against Satan, wearing the Lord's armor. They are Christians who have done all. 
The proceedings of that day will utterly discredit Satan, who was their accuser to God and their consciences, always threatening them with the terror of condemnation at the judgment seat of Christ. How confounded will the wicked world be to see the dirt they threw on the saints' faces wiped off with Christ's own hand? Would this not be sufficient recompense for all the scorn and conflict the Christians endure in this life? But this is not all. See, it also denotes the saints' rank in heaven. When princes wish to reward subjects who have distinguished themselves in service to the crown, they award them a place of honorable service at court. Solomon indicated that one of the highest honors a man could receive was to stand before the king. Heaven is the royal city where God keeps his court. The joy of angels is to stand there before God. Gabriel said, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. That is, I am one of those heavenly spirits who wait on God and stand before his face as courtiers wait upon their prince. Every faithful soul is promised this honor. Nothing should have a more powerful effect upon a saint's spirit than to consider his blissful estate in heaven as being the reward of all his conflicts here on earth. This sword should cut the very sinews of temptation and behead those lusts which defy whole troops of other arguments. How can sin coexist with the hope of such glory? It is when the thoughts of heaven are long out of the Christian's sight and he forgets his hope of that glorious place that he begins to set up some idol as Israel set up the calf and worshipped it in the absence of Moses. Only let heaven come into view, and the Christian's heart will be well warmed with thoughts of it. You may as soon persuade a king to throw down his royal diadem and wallow in the mud with his robes on as to convince a saint to sin when his heart is filled with the expectation of heaven's glory. Sin is a a devil's work, not a saint's. The, The saint waits every hour for the summons that will call him to stand with angels and glorified saints before the throne of God. How this should cheer and sustain his heart when the fight is hottest and the bullets fly thickest. If he must go through the fire and water to reach it, what is that discomfort compared to the eternal comfort of heaven? Keeping the joy of heaven always before you, will keep you running your race with patience. It will help you endure your short scuffles with temptation and affliction. What is more, it will make you reckon also that these afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Next time we move to the fourth consideration, namely the position to be maintained in the fight. That will be from Ephesians 6.14. Thank you so much again for being here. And if uh, you want, you could actually order this book for yourself. It's called The Christian in Complete Armor. This is volume one. It's a three-volume set. It might be good if you had this book on your shelf or in your hand on a regular basis. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again Real soon. Bye-bye.